Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. Hey all, we'll be back next week with chapter three of Dope Lake. You've heard a lot of voices and names in Dope Lake. John Long, Jim Bridwell, John Backer, Dale Bard, Vern Clevenger, John Yablonski. Big names, big personalities, backed by the skills to see a new athletic horizon. They help write the history of Yosemite Valley climbing. Today, though, we wanted to do a little deep dive into the roots that define the time and place, Yosemite in the 1970s. When the decade started, the hardest route in Yosemite checked in at 510. But by the end of that decade, the standard had climbed to 513. So let's dive in. As a student of, of history, Lauren, and our resident historian here on Climbing Gold, <laughs> <laughs> is there something that, you, that like really grabs you about that era? I guess I've been reflecting a little bit on that conversation with Mari, and we have bits of it throughout this season. But I think the most interesting part of that was listening to her talk about how being a climber meant being good at everything, and mm-hmm. that there wasn't a specialization in bouldering versus big wall climbing, aid climbing, you know, hard free climbing. Like there was just being a climber. The thing to really remember is that Yosemite Valley 50 years ago was just so different. You know, there're just mm-hmm. not that many routes and you could you could actually know them all. Like you could know what's on each cliff because there there aren't that many. You know, it's like there's one route up this wall, there're two routes on that wall. There's one free climb over there. There're, you know, 14 routes at the cookie. You know, now they're now they're 100. It's like hard to keep track of it all. So is the growth in roots and the, and the progression really um, a situation where necessity is the mother of all invention? Yeah, like they're going to the Incredible Hulk. They're putting up boulders on the east side and then coming back and climbing slab into Tuolumne and then dipping down into the valley and putting up some of the hardest roots on El Cap at the time. And like today, I feel like we don't really see that. Like people specialize. They think of it more like athletics and the more specialized you are at something, the better you can become at it. So it's really interesting that we think that now, but at the time, the best climbers of the day were doing everything. When I think about the 70s and one of the things that really sticks with me when I think about why that generation was so badass. And I love this idea of just being able to feel like your goal is that the goal is to be able to climb any rock, period. (laughs) You know, one way to look at it is that climbing in Yosemite went from 511 to 513 within a decade. So that sounds like incredible progression. But on the other hand, I see that more as them that the free climbing catching up to their physical capabilities because all the climbers who were doing those routes were already bouldering pretty hard and they're already really strong, fit people. I would venture a guess that the people that were climbing then actually could climb a lot harder than they were because they were doing a lot of these things like without falling and without being able to trust their gear in the way that we do now. So really it's just the standard is sort of catching up to the human potential, like mm-hmm. what these people are physically capable of doing. It just hadn't quite been done on these walls in Yosemite yet. Like what you had in the 70s was people who were willing to go up to cracks and go, I could climb that. And that just really, I don't think had happened before. Like you needed people to take an eye to free climbing and people really didn't have that before. Like you needed to change the whole way of thinking, right? You have like new dimensions, like classic first, first in air quotes is like a 5'11" in the park, right, in 72. 
it's funny because New Dimensions is one of those routes that's, uh, you know, it's the first 11A in Yosemite. And when you do it now, it like feels pretty easy for the grade, which is unusual for, for Yosemite 511. But when did Hotline get freed? Uh, it was 1975, which was a pretty good year. It was like uh, Astroman that year and uh, the first nose in a day. Hotline's the Valley's first multi-pitch 512. That does not feel easy for the grade. You're up there and you're like, dude, it's pretty uh, pretty full-on 12A. What what was cool that happened in the 1970s, besides the 1970s? The two biggest things that I think of are the Nose in a Day and Astro Man. Because I feel like what's more Yosemite than, than those two roots? But I feel like the story that I've heard over and over again is that John Long, Jim Bredwell, and Billy West Bay were sitting at the Mountain Room Bar and decided that they could probably climb El Cap in a day. And then they did. Yeah. But it like takes someone who's a little bit out there, I think, to go. I know that generations of people have thought that no one would ever do this, but I'm saying I probably can. And I don't really know where that confidence comes from, but it feels like it takes someone who's willing to be like, I don't care what you think. I'm yeah. going to try. Or you're just like super stoned and you're like, hold my beer, watch this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Astro Man and the Rostrum are so important. It's funny because even when I started climbing, you know, the sort of mid-90s, Astro Man and the Rostrum still represented two of the most important routes in Yosemite. They're just so consistent. They're so high quality. You know, they're difficult, but they're also fairly difficult the whole way. They're like an, an exam in the valley. I mean, certainly when I started climbing, climbing Astro Man represented being a, a true valley master. Like if you can free Astro Man, you have what it takes to climb in Yosemite. Did the gear play a, a big, big role in that too? Well, you have to suspect that the gear would have helped a bit, but it couldn't have helped that much in the 70s because... You know, I mean, camming devices were first used on a couple of routes, but only really at the end of the 70s. You know, so yeah. the standards would have all been changing as people were climbing with just hexes and nuts and some pitons and whatever else. I mean, you know, cams weren't really popular until the 80s. And so, you know, I think most of the, the development in Yosemite in the 70s was still being done on all the, all the old school gear. On the first all-female ascent of the nose, uh, which was Molly Higgins and Barbie Eastman in 77, they talked to Ray Jardine, and Ray gave them three cams. Ray invented Friends, which were the kind of original camming unit. A number one, mm -hmm. a number two, and a number three, and they took them with them. But that was still like, yeah, they had a couple cams, but like it didn't really change much, right? Like they're still placing their rack most of the time. Have you ever uh, like tried out a pair of old EBs? No, but I climb a lot in my approach shoes. I was like, surely that can't be too much worse. Yeah, I think when you see a photo of somebody rock climbing in the 70s, it looks like they're wearing climbing shoes. But it's really not comparable to what we wear nowadays as climbing shoes because the rubber is not the same. And, and really, that's the most important part of a climbing shoe is how it sticks to the rock. And the rubber in the 70s was basically just hard rubber. It wasn't sticky rubber. It wasn't what we think of as, as climbing shoe rubber. It was just like old school climbing shoes are, are more akin to mountain boots in some ways where they're just a really rigid platform that allows you to stand on, on certain types of edges, but you can't really smear, you can't do anything technical with your feet. You know, modern climbing shoes are just so much more versatile and so much stickier and just, I mean, so much better. You know, Wallace is the era of progression. You know, they're training at, in, in Camp 4. They've got the backer ladders. They're doing pull-ups all the time. And there is this, like, commitment to athleticism, but there's also this, like, level over there. Just They're just cool, like, wandering around in the woods. 
looking around in places that the last generation wouldn't have looked around for like one 80-foot climb, you know, right, in in a place where there's these giant 3,000-foot granite monoliths, right? And most of the time, they're, they're probably like stumbling around in the woods, getting poison oak, and then every once in a while, they stumble on this just this incredible, striking, beautiful line. Yeah, Separate Reality and, and uh, Tales of Power, actually, the one below Separate Reality is, is uh, quite a bit harder and, and I find really difficult. Separate Reality was literally found, like, wandering in the woods. Like, Ron Kalk and Lucy Parker were just out for a stroll looking for rocks to climb. And then you wrap down even further and there's Tales of Power and you're like, this is a really weird place to discover a rock climb. You tell they're both put up by the same generation of, of seekers, you know, like people, people on drugs trying to find something. Both Carlos Castaneda stories or whatever. You know, Midnight Lightning, for me, you guys, you said like the nose and, and, and Astro Man. And I feel like Midnight Lightning is also just such an epitome of that. I mean, Ron Kalk was very, very strong in 1978. I mean, everything about climbing Midnight Lightning in the 70s sounds so hardcore. It just sort of is like an essence of the generation, right? Here's this thing that gets overlooked. It's 1978. John Yablonski, who may or may not have been high on acid at that stage, which it was a lot, but he's sitting in front of the Columbia Boulder. I mean, as someone that's lived in Camp 4, it's like you just bike past the Columbia Boulder like 50 times a day. <laughs> like, you go to the bathroom, Columbia Boulder. You go to work, Boulder. You go to the store, Boulder. You leave to go climbing, you pass the Columbia Boulder. And it's like, became this huge legendary thing. And he sees this hold, shaped like a lightning bolt. Each side of the hold, a perfect crimp. These guys have walked past this, this piece of rock hundreds, if not thousands of times at that stage. And Yablonski says to John Backer and Round Cow, hey, there's a boulder problem there. The problem is tall, it's dynamic. I mean, you look at it, it's got this like super committing mantle to it. And I wonder like how much of it came out of like a cockiness in like a good way, right? Yeah. Of like this almost like really masculine type of, or just this confidence of being like, I could hold on to those holds. And over the course of, of a few months, the trio, they work on it. Kalk was the first to pull over the lip, followed shortly by Backer. It's pretty crazy. I mean, doing that mantle with shoes that aren't that sticky, it all just, you're like, oh, that's pretty hardcore. And without crash pads, because <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty scary. Like the first time I did Midnight Lightning, the first day I tried it, I made it to the top, like to the lip, to the mantle where you roll over onto the top of the boulder and it was basically too scary and I backed off it. And then I came back a day or two later with a little more of a plan and, and was able to do the mantle. But, you know, I had a bunch of big crash pads beneath me and beta and I knew it was possible and all those kinds of things. I mean, the idea of doing that without a pad seems pretty scary. The name was taken from a Jimi Hendrix song. They joked that there was about the same chance of getting up the problem as there was lightning hitting exactly at midnight. I'd love to think about the fact that there are these like problems right in front of our faces and that the shift is happening mentally, right? And not just physically. Like, yeah, at some point the, the mental shift happened because they were strong enough and they started looking for holds, but like they were probably strong enough to do that route way before they actually did it. And these three friends, they're able to conjure something beautiful and iconic out of something that most people are just walking past, right? And 
it's, it's not just Backer, it's not just Kalk or Jablonski. It's like that entire generation, they saw something in climbing. They saw athleticism, they saw a culture, they saw a community in a way that other people didn't. And it was just so contagious and so awesome. And I know we're probably like looking back at that with like some rose-colored glasses, but I don't know. It just still seems to come through when you talk to those people. We'll be back next week with Chapter 3.